This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambender here. I could not be more excited to share this amazing Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. What is Cardio Nerds Rounds, you ask? Well, Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we get to learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from the University of Maryland and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds Rounds are generally held once monthly during the noon hour Eastern Standard Time, but then are released via podcast like in this episode for your asynchronous medical education pleasure. You can find out more about Cardio Nerds Rounds and register for upcoming events on cardionerdsrounds.com forward slash rounds. Cardionerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeVest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Ivan Chivari for their top-notch production skills that make Cardiac Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away. Welcome back, everybody. And if this is your first time, welcome to Cardio Nerds Rounds. The goal of this session is really to be a relaxed format to discuss cases, real cases, with world experts. And we certainly have a world expert with us here today. Without further ado, I do want to introduce Dr. Ryan Tedford. So Dr. Tedford did his internal medicine, cardiology fellowship, advanced heart failure, transplant cranial, and assistant chief of service here all at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He served as medical director of MCS there and cardiovascular hemodynamics. And then he was recruited to be the chief of heart failure and medical director of cardiac transplantation at MUSC in Charleston, South Carolina. He is professor of medicine and directs the advanced heart failure and transplant fellowship program. Now, as many, many of you know, Dr. Tedber has numerous research and educational accolades. He's been internationally known for his peer-reviewed publications, PI of multiple clinical trials, section editor of prestigious journals, and specifically, he's been a tremendous friend of cardio nerds. You know, the only demerit that I can say on Dr. Tedford's record is that he's a Cowboys fan, but otherwise, he represents the true epitome of a triple threat physician who all cardio nerds should want to emulate. So Dr. Tedford, welcome to Cardio Nerds Rounds. Corin, it's a pleasure to be here. I was about to say that's the kindest introduction I ever had until you insulted my Cowboys. <laughs> but, but we can agree to disagree on that. I'm really uh, happy to be here and, of course, love to talk about the uh, hemodynamics and support the cardio nerds in any way I can. We have no relevant disclosures for this specific session. So why don't we see our first patient? This is a woman. She's in her late 30s, and she's presenting the hospital with four weeks of worsening shortness of breath. And a little bit of background on her, she has a dilated non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, 
since 2012. This was discovered after she had a VT arrest on the treadmill. And she had work up at that time, a cardiac MRI had a nonspecific leak gadolinium enhancement pattern, genetic testing and biopsy were all negative, and it was deemed idiopathic non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Now, she's been on guideline-directed therapy since 2012, but over the past few years, she's had progression of symptoms, and specifically, it's been dyspnea. On echo, she's had progressive LV dilation. And if you look through the chart and previous echoes, your EF has been around 15 to 20% over these past few years with an LV diameter and then diastole somewhere around seven centimeters. At the same time, this is a, a woman that works in a daycare, had been pretty functional, but this past month, she really can't keep up there. She had decreased exercise tolerance, she's had paroxysmal nocturnodyspnea, orthopnea, lower extremity edema, and she's reporting that she's had a few episodes of hypotension. She monitors her blood pressure quite frequently. You're reviewing the chart and you know that she's coming in. Her outpatient cardiologist is letting you know. She's been on carbidol, 12.5 milligrams BID. Secubitrol, Valsartan, 24.6 milligrams BID, a low dose. Spinalactone, and paglopulosin, and torsamide at a very high dose. She's a direct admission. And you note that her blood pressure is 95 over 70. Heart rate's 90, and it's, uh, 90 beats per minute, sinus. She's 96% on her room air and is breathing 20 times a minute. And you just look at her and she looks chronically ill. You can see on your examination that her JVD is at 14 centimeters and 90 degrees. She's got diminished breath sounds at both bases. She got a positive S3 and a whole systolic murmur at apex. She feels lukewarm on your exam and is one plus and two. Some pertinent labs that you come back, you have a lactate that's 2.0, NT pro BMP that's at 2260, which is the highest it's been for her. The creatinine is 1.4, which is elevated prior to her baseline, which is typically around one. I might just make a, a comment here. As we think back to the classic description of acute decompensated heart failure, looking to see if the patient is warm uh, and cold or, or dry and wet, there's really a fifth category that I think about, and that is this person. That's the young patient. They don't behave that way, right? The fact that you know, she's you know, hypotensive, has a narrow pulse pressure, you can't be reassured that she has a normal lactate, right? Because her body has a lot of reserve and she could have a very, very low cardiac index and actually not make any lactate. So I always tell my fellows, my treaties, somebody comes in that's young, they're tachycardic, if they're having abdominal symptoms, that would be very concerning to me. And the one other thing, I think you guys had thought about this because you did an MRI, but part of it may be that I'm biased living in the sarcoid belt, but this would be someone that I would think about cardiac sarcoid with her young age and history of ET and and potential conduction on the mountains. That just mimics the ethos of this. Rounds, we should get pearls. This is an echo just actually a week prior to her admission in a chest x-ray. We'll start with a chest x-ray. You can clearly see that on this chest x-ray, there's marked cardiomegaly. You can see that there's splaying of the trachea indicative of left atrial emergence. and cephalization of the vessels. Maybe a small pleural fusion obscured on the left heart border and the left costophrenic angle on the right costophrenic angle. And then what I'm showing here for our podcast audience as well is on this echocardiogram, you clearly see on this peristernal long axis view that this is a sick ventricle. It's dilated, you know, on measurements, it was 6.9 centimeters. You can see that we're not capturing all the endocardium, but there is severe global hypokinesis. You can see the size of the left atrium is severely dilated. You don't see the RV free wall here, but I'll show it in a couple more images. We'll focus on this first image on the left here, where I'm showing in the apical floor chamber. But again, a dilated LV, mildly dysfunctional RV, but not significantly dilated. You can clearly see just by color that there's moderate to severe, likely functional MR due to the mitral annulus being dilated, the mitral valve leafless and the coaptation plane going towards the LV. On quantitation, it was severe MR. 
We didn't see the free wall here, but on others, we saw that it was a uh, reduced RV function. And I'm going to show the IVC here, and I didn't put the respirometer. You can see that it's clearly dilated. And when you do have the respirometer, there was actually an inspiratory diastolic flow reversal in that hepatic vein. And this is just to show a tissue Doppler uh, of the ventricle, again, showing a very sick ventricle. The, there's this thought of a 555 sign in patients with infiltrative cardiomyopathy or just a very sick ventricle and 555 sign B that the E velocity, the S velocity, and A velocity don't get above five centimeters a second. So a sick ventricle. This patient was actually taken to the cath lab for a hemodynamic assessment shortly after she had arrived to the floor here. And I'm going to go through this and then uh, turn it over to our guru to give some pearls here. But what I'm showing here on the top right is the RA waveform. And you can see that the RA pressures are clearly elevated. The mean of the A wave is close to 20 and slightly higher end expiration when it should be measured. There aren't very large V waves, but at times there's a rapid Y descent. On the patient's RV waveform, you can clearly see the very elevated pressures. RV was measured at 71 over 7. You can see that there's a clear rapid filling initially, and then it's uh, filling slows, potentially a square root sign on this RV waveform. And then we get to the PA, and you can see that's uh, severely elevated as well, it's 71 over 31 with a mean of 46. There's beat-to-beat -beat variation. Now, this patient didn't have an arterial line at that moment to compare if this was pulses alternans in the PA and systemically. And then I'm showing a wedge waveform where in N expiration, the wedge pressure is 28 with V waves up to 31. And I'm just going to quickly give what the cardiac output and index were by thermodilution. It was 3 and 1.4 with the PA sat at 41%. You know, some calculations, the PVR was 6 wood units. Something called the cardiac power output was quite low when you account for the RA pressure. For what it's worth, I included a PAPI, but we can talk about what its utility here is, and it's 2.9. No, th this is a lot of information, Dr. Tepfer, before I get to polling the audience here, but basically a young woman, long-standing cardiomyopathy, clearly demonstrating congestion and low perfusion and with these waveforms. Well, first I would say to all the, the trainees out there, in addition to the absolute numbers, we can learn so much by just looking at the waveforms. And Dr. Desai already made some of those comments, but I'll just touch on a couple. So when you go back to that right atrial pressure tracing, one of the things you'll notice is there's almost no respiratory variation here. Now, when those prominent white ascents, that's likely occurring during inspiration, so you can actually figure out when this patient's inspiring, but you'll see that there's really no change in the mean pressure during inspiration. And so this is essentially a resting Kuzmalt sign that the patient has. And so Whenever I see this, it's really indicative of somebody with significant RV dysfunction. You'll see this very commonly in the setting of right heart failure after ventricular cyst device. And so even though the RV did not look very dilated, hemodynamically, this person is looking like they actually have a very sick RV. I would echo the comments about the likely pulses alternance, and, and it's shown very nicely there in both the RV, but also the pulmonary artery pressure tracing. And as we think about what causes pulses alternans, there's really two uh, possible theories. So one relates to the Frank Starling mechanism that the ventricle has a very low stroke volume. And so therefore the next beat, the LB in diastolic volume is actually higher. And so therefore that next beat is potentiated because of the Frank Starling mechanism. More recently, it's been suggested that this actually has to do with issues with calcium handling and upregulation of a protein called calcium sequestrant. And they have actually shown that the calcium 
currents actually are altered in similar mechanisms. So this may have to do with uh, issues with calcium handling and sarcoplasm in particular. So if we move now to the, the wedge pressure tracing, you'll actually notice it looks quite different from the RA pressure tracing. And you see that there is respiratory variation there. And when we think about respiratory variation, classically, we think about, well, this can be accentuated in, in obesity or in lung disease. We don't really think that's the case with this individual. But it turns out that loading conditions can also do this. And it turns out the more that you could decongest the pulmonary vein, the more respiratory variation you have. And essentially, you're changing the compliance of the pulmonary venous circulation. So as those pulmonary veins are decongested, you can store more blood and the pulmonary veins during inspiration, and therefore your pressures will be lower. And so even though clearly the wedge pressure is high here, this type of pattern may actually indicate that the LV is somewhat underfilled, or there may be some pericardial constraint. So this actually brings me to a point I like to make, and I'm going to share this t-shirt that was made for me this week, and that is pressure does not equal volume. And so uh, shout out to my colleague, uh, Dr. Ramos in the USC Amway Center who made me that shirt. It's my new favorite shirt. But again, just going back to the waveforms, we really can learn a lot just by looking at the waveforms themselves. So don't just look at the numbers in the report, take a look uh, and see what you can find. Dr. Tepford, I think uh, we got to post that t-shirt on the Cardinal uh, <laughs> website to get it out to everybody. That's such a great point, you know, not what the exact numbers are, but really paying attention to the patterns and putting in the context of the patient's whole picture here. And then I included what the cardiac output and index were, some calculations that we would have. I, I know Dr. Tedford said pressure doesn't always just equal volume, but a decision was made to diurese this patient. But what else would you guys do next? Now, I'll mention this patient's map around the time this right heart cath was 87. She was not given sedation. So would you start nitroprusside? Would you give pH-specific therapy plus an inotrope? Would you place a balloon pump? Would you place a, an impella device? You know, would you start melbourneone? Would someone jump to VA ECMO? This is not an uncommon patient. Presentation is pretty common across all our hospitals. Dr. Tedford, how would you approach this case? As I think about this patient, I have to think, okay, what is my out here, right? She has long-standing cardiomyopathy. It sounds like she's certainly been struggling. We have lots of factors and suggest she's going to need advanced therapies. So one, I'm going to want her to support her during diuresis. And what is the best way to do that? But also I'm going to want to assess her candidacy for advanced therapies, including transplant. And you showed us that her pulmonary vascular resistance is six wood units. And that, of course, is considered a relative contraindication to transplant. And so I'm going to want to test for reversibility. I'm also going to want to hemodynamically support her while I get this fluid off to see if I can get her in a better uh, compensated state. I love mesonitroprusside. Again, we can use it very acutely to test for reversibility. I would do that first in the cath lab. It's got a very short half-life, of course, so we can turn it off if the patient gets hypotensive. And then depending on those results, I think an initial uh, attempt at inotropic uh, therapy with milorinone would be a very reasonable thing. One other thing I'll mention just again with the right atrial pressure being this high and the PAPI being as low as it is, PAPI, I think it is actually probably our best hemodynamic uh, marker of RV function. Uh, so Stephen Sue, who's runs the MCS program at Johns Hopkins, actually had myocardial tissue from patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, was able to isolate single RV myocytes and look to see uh, as he exposed them to calcium concentrations, which hemodynamic measure was the most tightly correlated with a single myocyte function. All the usual suspects were included, right atrial pressure, right atrial pressure to wedge ratio, the PAPI, and it turned out PAPI actually was the best. 
One of the things I just will mention about tapping, remember it's a ratio, right? So it's the pulmonary pulse pressure over the right atrial pressure. And just remember that RA pressure can make a big difference. So you could have a right atrial pressure of three versus six, and the PAPI would be either half or twice what you think it is, even though there may not be a big clinical difference in that patient. So when, when right atrial pressure is low, PAPI is probably less useful. And when it's elevated, again, I think it's a good marker of artery dysfunction. You know, Dr. Tepfer, uh, maybe not for this specific patient, but there was a question in the chat. Uh, how does one obtain a best wedge pressure with wide respiratory variation? Boy, that is a great question. I saw that coming in the chat, and, and I think I could probably talk about 30 minutes uh, on that subject. When we think about impedial left heart disease, it's still recommended that we measure at end expiration. But it's clear that there are certain situations where that's going to overestimate our, our true uh, left heart filling pressures. In patients who have known severe lung disease and perhaps in the morbidly obese, averaging over the respiratory cycle may be a better estimate. Uh, unfortunately, it's not very predictable. So you can actually measure or you can estimate intrathoracic pressure by esophageal tonometry. And when they've done that in very obese patients, for example, on average, it's overestimated in expiration, but it's variable within patients. So typically what I do is I remember that the wedge is just a single number and I'll report both. I'll say this is the average over the respiratory cycle. This is an end expiration. And then I look at the whole clinical picture of the phenotype of the patient as I'm trying to determine what this really means. So there was an initial attempt at a nitroprusside challenge in the catheterization lab where it was very low dose at 0.5 mics per cake per minute. I don't have the tracings that were obtained right at that moment because the patient did drop her systolic blood pressure below 100. Uh, MAP was right around 60 and she felt uh, lightheaded at that time. But the mean PA pressure had been falling by 10 to 12 millimeters of mercury. So as you mentioned, a transplant evaluation had been in shit. After she had settled out from the cath lab, and to support her through diuresis, as her maps were actually coming back up, reattack the nitroprusside wasn't done. The patient was placed on milrinone, and her PA pressures were coming down marginally with the milrinone, with the diuresis. And over a few days, her cardiac index remained low, and then she was starting to develop nausea. So dibutamine was added by the team at that time, and she was taken back to the cath lab for an intraoperative balloon pump, and we can discuss whether an intraoperative balloon pump was the right decision at this point or not. But she was taken back, and then. Hemodynamics were obtained on one day of being on a balloon pump, and I'm going to show that next. So this RA waveform up in the upper left corner of the screen. Now, it is a lower mean RA pressure around 14 to 16. Again, we don't see large V waves and very minimal respiratory variations, Dr. Tepper pointed out previously. Now, the RV pressure had decreased. It was 57 over 10. And again, you see this rapid descent and then uh, equilibration. And the PA we had 57 over 27 with a mean of 38. Again, her decreased from the previously having a mean of 46 and the PA systolic pressure of 70. But what's interesting is this wedge waveform. And I know Dr. Tefer, you can walk us through this. So this patient's uh, wedge waveform is trying A wave around 20, but now you clearly see that there are larger V waves. And this is a patient that has a balloon pump in place, is on milrinone, and is on dibutamine. Though we're now seeing larger V waves. Dr. Tepfer, what do you think about this? And I'm showing what the cardiac output and index at this time were uh, quite marginally similar to previously with a similar uh, PAPI and a cardiac power output. I think when people think about V waves, right, the first thing that jumps to the mind is mitral regurgitation. You've shown us this patient has severe mitral regurgitation, but certainly you wouldn't think that it got worse on milrinone, balloon pump, uh, and all of the measures that you've done. And really the most common cause of a large V-wave is assuming that you have a occlusive wedge, to be fair, 
is just a stifled atrium. And the stiff the atrium can be stiff because of the mitral regurgitation. It can be stiff due to high left atrial pressure or some other factors. But I think what we're seeing here is now you have had an improvement in that RV to LV transit. And so now you're actually filling the left ventricle more than you were previously. And now you're seeing these V waves come out, suggesting that the left atrium is obviously diseased and quite stiff. I'm going to pose another poll question to our audience here. So now you have this information, patients on dual inotrope, a balloon pump, uh, relatively low index, still has elevated filling pressure, still has an elevated PBR, still has elevated right-side filling pressures. So what would you do next? Would you increase the inotropes? Would you give this patient pH-specific therapy? Would you switch to Impella? Would you reattempt the nitroprusside challenge to assess the candidacy for um, heart transplant in this patient? Would you do something other? And then it could include a, other types of mechanical support or stay in the course here. And we have a majority of people that say they want to uh, switch to a percutaneous VAD with a smattering of the other things here. Well, I think one, now that she is a, a bit better supported with uh, an inotrope plus a balloon pump, I still need to test reversibility. And again, we can do that with a nitroprusside uh, challenge, or we can better unload the LB with a device like Mopella and to do that. She's clearly failing relatively hydrobinotrope. Her hemodynamics are not very good on a balloon pump. And so I think as we think about that next step and what my out's going to be, it's looking more and more like it, it's probably transplants. I'm, I'm very worried about using a ventricular assist device in this individual because of the RV. So if transplant is an option, it's going to be our best. So I think all things considered uh, at this point, I would still like to do an IPRI challenge. And then likely move to more support like an Intel 55 would be a very reasonable thing. Now, Dr. Tepper, we mentioned it now a few times, a night pride challenge. And for our non-heart failure participants here, can you just go through what that means? What is a night pride challenge and what the markers we're looking for? Sure, absolutely. So we know that in patients who have this pre-capillary component to the left heart disease, we call that combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension that a large majority of that pre-capillary component is functional, right? So after transplant, after LVAD, it all really melts away with very, very few exceptions. And it turns out if patients have an elevated PBR, of course, either three to five weight units, we know those patients are at risk of developing right heart failure after a transplantation, especially as that uh, uh, heart that's not used to pumping against those high pressures gets put into the system. And so we can test for reversibility and Ipride is really the best agent to do that, right? That's going to Lower SVR is going to lower our LV filling pressures. We're going to pharmacologically unload the LV and we're going to see the response. And so it turns out that if we can lower pulmonary vascular resistance to less than two and a half wood units, while importantly maintaining the systolic blood pressure greater than 85, those individuals have the same outcome post-transplant as if that individual had to not have any pulmonary hypertension. And the seminal paper on that was uh, Coster and Jackal and Jack in 1992. It's kind of the, the gold standard uh, for heart transplantation. So if you haven't read that paper, uh, please do. But just remember, you want to get that PVR to less than two and a half while maintaining a blood pressure of at least 85 millimeters mercury. If you can, those patients, you can get to transplant. What are predictors of a balloon pump responder in the chronic heart failure population? And I didn't mention it previously, you know, this patient's stroke volume was less than the typical balloon size. This patient's stroke volume is around 35 cc's when for this patient, a 40cc balloon was going to be used. So it could be one of the things that indicate that she probably wouldn't have been a balloon pump responder. And then another question is, uh, would you consider a BIVAD in a patient who's a bridge to transplant? 
can consider a buyback, right? But I, I think we're still not quite sure she's going to be a candidate for transplant. So I first want to load the LV and see actually what happens to RV and what happens to that pre-capillary component. So certainly we, we may need biventricular support in this individual, but especially because these devices can be put in percutaneously now, especially on the right side. And I typically will try to load the LV first and see what happens. But I am concerned about the RV. Great. And so could you use mechanical unloading to assess reversibility? And, and this patient continued to teeter with her perfusion and how she looks. Her systolic blood pressures were becoming borderline. So she was upgraded to an impelvisonic side, and I'm showing Plaxview here in an appropriate position. LV only marginally decreased in size, but we can see that on a maximum support without any evidence of hemolysis, her bedside hemodynamics show that her CVP was 14, her PA mean was 28, wedge 15, and cardiac output at 7.3 liters, probably something she hasn't seen since she was 20 years old. She was ultimately, one week later after the upgrade to uh, Impella device, received a, a heart transplant. So she was three days post-op, off epinephrine. I was on milrinone alone, which it did continue through from pre to post-transplant. Her hemodynamics showed that she had a MAP of 70, an RA pressure of 18, PA mean of 27, wedge 15, good cardiac output, low PVR, and like you said, it's a ratio, but the ratio of the PAPI was 0.9. You can see it's a post-operative patient with a low SVR, some level of vasoplegia post-operatively. Dr. Tefford, how would you get them from now getting the heart transplant to home? And what would your management look like at this point? Absolutely. You've shown reversibility here with your impeller device, so you're done. And this is a good transplant candidate. But you also see that by unloading uh, the LV, you really haven't impacted your CVP. And that RA pressure to wedge ratio one is quite concerning. So again, not going to be an ideal candidate here for a ventricular assist device. And there's actually a paper in JHLT out just about a month ago from the Methodist group using these type of devices to predict RV failure. And if you don't see significant changes in your CVP as you unload the LV, that's one of the predictors. One, one thing I do want to say is please don't put this person on sedimental, right? If they have a, a normal pulmonary vascular resistance it's probably going to make the patient worse. And so when you look here, this person has a very low SVR and the RV does appear like it's struggling a little bit, but it's not from a pressure overload state. This is probably a little bit of RVPGD. What do we want to do? We want to make sure this patient is not hypotensive. So the map's only 70, their SVR is low. And so we're going to want to come off that milrinone. And perhaps if we do need another hydrotrope, use one that's not going to cause a systemic vasodilatation. And they need lots of diuresis. And if you can't diurese them, you probably need a pull fluid off with CVVH. And so that's how I would manage this patient. Now, thanks, Dr. Teffer. And that's pretty much what was done. The, the patient came off the mill round, did need a little bit of support to diurese. And so that the nephrine was restarted, but eventually weaned off and is doing quite well. Why don't we go see our next patient? So this next patient, you, you actually are uh, meeting in the office. And this patient is a woman in her late 40s, and she's actually coming for a third opinion regarding pH management. So the brief story is that in the mid-90s, she underwent a mechanical mitral valve replacement for severe mitral stenosis in the setting of prior rheumatic fever. 
At the same time, she had a single vessel cabbage SVG to the RCA. The details are not available to me to what was, so if that was uh, during the OR, if there was an injury to the RCA, or um, if that was a prior disease process. In the early 2000s, I had a pacemaker placed for afibotachy Brady. And at the same time, she had severe symptomatic TR, and she underwent a tricuspid valve repair with a reduced ergonomy. And in between this period, nearly 15 years, she actually did quite well, was working at her job, really didn't have any heart failure symptoms. But in late 2020, she starts reporting that she's having dyspnea, abdominal fullness, lower extremity edema. And before she even sees you, she has four to five hospitalizations. So before she sees you at a hospital in the area, she had a right heart cath. So the initial number showed at a map of 93, she had an RA pressure of 19 with V waves up to 27 millimeters of mercury. RV pressure severely elevated, 90 over 18, PA 90 over 36 with a mean close to 60, a wedge pressure that was 30, a cardiac output and index that was 4.3 and 2.7. Now this is reported by FIC, not by thermodilution. And when you do some calculations, she has a PVR of the seven woods units, an RA to wedge ratio of 0.7. Now, at this institution, the decision was made to do a vasoreactivity test with nitric oxide and 100% oxygen. And we can talk about that shortly here. But with the vasoreactivity test, her PA pressure, her beam pressure did decrease by 14 millimeters mercury. And her wedge pressure actually didn't go up. I mean, assuming this was measured correctly, her map stayed normal to elevated. And her output and index was 6.5 and 4. So I'm given that information. This is someone that's seen multiple institutions, has very elevated pressures. You're getting this report before you're going to see this patient and has some level uh, of a vasoreactive response, though not meeting strict criteria on uh, a right heart cath before she sees it. So as I'm sure you all did, the first thing I would want to do is repeat this study, right? So there's a couple of issues uh, that we need to be aware of. So one, uh, this was an indirect fic. And how do I know it was an indirect fic? Well, you can't actually measure VO2 with somebody on supplemental oxygen. We know that thermodilution should be used rather than indirect fic. In all situations, even in severe tricuspid regurgitation, the one exception is an intracardiac shunt. So this person really should not be given nitric oxide. It certainly can cause a rise in their witch pressure and can precipitate pulmonary edema. I certainly have seen it. When do we use nitric oxide? We use nitric oxide when testing for vasoreactivity and pulmonary arterial hypertension in patients having low wedge pressure. What are we looking for there? We're looking for a fall of the mean pulmonary pressure by at least 10 millimeters of mercury to an absolute value of less than 40 while increasing or maintaining their cardiac output. And we do that only to test to see if they're going to have response to calcium channel blockers and only the idiopathic or drug-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension. So I would implore you not to use nitric oxide in your patients with left heart disease. The other thing I think uh, you were falsely reassured here that the pulmonary vascular resistance uh, actually went down. Predominantly, it's because the cardiac output index went up and you're overestimating that because of the 100% oxygen. I would not be reassured by this right heart cath and I'm sure you guys repeated it and that's what I would do as well. That's exactly right, Dr. Techford. And I'll go through some of the other data that we had available before we meet this patient in the office. And I'm showing the echocardiogram here. And we can clearly see that in this patient, you know, I have a smaller LV size, but very large RV. You can already see there's something abnormal going on here with the septum. And we'll describe that more in the short access view. I'm showing a mechanical mitral valve here. We can certainly see that there's flow acceleration across the mitral valve. I can make out one leaflet, but I can't truly make out the other. And you can see there's some flow acceleration across the LVOT. What I'm showing on the echocardiogram, those deemed to be some level LVOT obstruction after initial mitral valve surgery. 
I'm showing on the right side of the screen an RV inflow view, and you could see that there is flow acceleration across the tricuspid repair, and certainly some hint that there is severe TR. You can see this diastolic and systolic flattening in the septum indicative of both pressure and volume overload in the RV. What was seen in the hepatic vein was that there was systolic flow reversal indicative of severe TR. And I'm showing in some of these other views here, again, that this patient has a very, very dilated right atrium. The RV was dilated. It's not captured well on this image here. But a focus on that mitral valve, again, showing that there's some flow acceleration, uh, not really able to make out much MR. Now, by echo, the gradient was determined to be about 13 millimeters of mercury across the mitral valve at a heart rate of 70, potentially indicative of those really elevated gradients. But the question remains why. We see her in clinic. You know, blood pressure is 110 over 70. She's 100% of room air. Some of our pH clinics and uh, a lot of kudos to Dr. Gotham Romani who provided me this case was that ambulated her and she was only able to walk 50 meters before she developed dyspnea. When you meet her on exam, she looks fatigued. She's got scleral icterus. You see large V waves in her neck veins or CV waves and JVP is 15. She's got a prominent RBC. You can feel her liver edge uh, being pulsatile below her costal margin. She's got one plus edema. Through this course, she was diagnosed with a hemolytic anemia. Hemoglobin had been generally in the 7.5 range. LDH, this is all similar to prior hospitalizations, 4,000 and haptoglobin less than 20 with an elevated billing. At another institution before coming to meet you, she'd been placed on torsamide, warfarin, did sildenafil, and she'd also been placed on spironolactone. The sildenafil was after that right heart cast she had at another institution. So you meet her, and as Dr. Tedford mentioned, one of the first things we wanted to do is repeat uh, the right heart catheterization. And I'm showing, again, RA, RV, PA, and wedge waveforms, and we can have Dr. Tedford describe what he sees here. But just generally, we see that the RA pressure, again, is quite elevated. It's at 18, but large V waves and CV kind of format to it, with V waves approaching 27 to 30 millimeters of mercury. We see the RV was 75 over 5, and PA was 75 over 28 in an expiration. This is also done at 10 milligrams CID as you've been placed on at another hospital. And the mean PA pressure was 39 with a wedge of 24. What was done as well was that this patient had a simultaneous wedge and LV pressure creasing. She didn't have a transeptal, let's uh, assess that uh, a microvalve radio directly. And what you see is interesting here. Now the LVDP is elevated and you can see that the wedge waveform is elevated and then rapidly decreases. And there's no gradient across from the wedge to the LV by early diastole, actually, there's a steep waveform, uh, steep downtrend of the V wave to the Y descent. This is some of the other information that was given at that time by thermodilution. Her cardiac hope was a six, cardiac index is 3.5, PVR is 2.5 wood units. Dr. Tedford, seeing these waveforms, what is your thoughts? Absolutely. You, you certainly do see signs of significant TR there with those very large V waves on the right atrial pressure tracing. As opposed to our, our last case, actually, you see that there is respiratory variation. And so this could suggest that the, the TR might be a little bit more the culprit here than perhaps the right heart itself. On the wedge pressure tracing, you see that A wave and very large V waves. Now, that LV certainly looked underfilled on your echo, and you do see a lot of respiratory variation here. But the V wave, I think, is obviously indicative of having not mitral regurgitation, but a stiff left atrium from that mechanical heart valve that's there. Again, the healthy looking underfill on the echo, this might be a situation where that severe TR is actually contributing to pericardial restraint. 
and responsible for some of the elevation of left heart joint pressures that you're seeing. And you nicely point out here that the mitral stenosis is not the issue, right? The measured uh, end diastolic wedge is the same or even a little bit lower than the LVEDP. And so this was not an issue of not having an inclusive wedge saturation because you actually can flame that with an LVEDP. But mitral stenosis is not really the problem. So basically, we have this woman in her mid-40s that's previously had a mechanical mitral valve place for rheumatic disease. And then over time, was doing quite well until up a year ago where she really has a lot of right-sided symptoms. She then gets a right heart cath with severely elevated pressures on the right side with an elevated wedge pressure as well. And another institution, a vasoreactivity test was done. A vasoreactivity test was done in the setting of a pre and post capillary pH elevated wedge, and there was some response. So the decision was made to place on low dose of denophil. And now you have these tracings that Dr. Tepper kind of went through with you. And along the course, she was diagnosed with hemolytic anemia. So uh, I guess the questions would be to our audience, what would you do next? Would you refer her for a TE? And I forgot to mention on the sildenafil, she just said she felt a little bit better. So would you increase her sildenafil? There's not too much more in terms of medical therapy I can do, and I'll try to optimize it, but I'll refer for a heart transplant. Going back to our previous cases, a patient with elevated PVR, clearly elevated filling pressure, would you refer for a heart and lung transplant? Or would you say, you know, maybe the sildenafil isn't appropriate, there was a vasoreactivity, I'm going to put her on dual pH therapy or something else. So Dr. Tepfer, how would you approach it? One of the issues she has that you mentioned is hemolysis, right? So we'd be a little bit concerned about valvular dysfunction or a perivalvular leak. And so I think a combination of fluoroing the valves uh, and then a TE would certainly be indicated from a kind of an acute uh, standpoint. And, and then we'd have to see which way she went in terms of her dyspnea once her anemia improved how she did. I do want to caution folks, both sildenafil and the few that mentioned dual pH therapy. We know that using sildenafil in particular and the setting of pulmonary hypertension after valvular intervention is harmful. So we know that from the CEVAC study, which randomized patients with persistent pulmonary hypertension one year after valvular intervention, most of these were mitral valve interventions, and those individuals had worsening functional status at follow-up. So we really try not to use sildenafil in those patients who have had valvular interventions. Hopefully, we'll do more studies where we can learn. So I, I wouldn't do that. I am concerned about this individual with severe tricuspid regurgitation. And by the way, she needs diuresis and lots of it. But you've shown that her pulmonary mask resistance is actually not very elevated. And so she's someone that I would consider a heart transplantation down the road if she's not better with intervention of whatever valvular issue she has. Dr. Tepper, can you just expound on that a little bit more? Why specifically not heart, lung? You mentioned the PDR. Is that primarily the reason? Yeah, as we think about what the PVR means, right, it goes back to how we measure the wedge pressure, right? So you have your end diastolic wedge there at 24 and then V waves to 33. Those V waves are contributing to the systolic pulmonary artery pressure. And so what we actually want to do when we calculate this PVR is, is incorporate the V waves. So we want to use the mean wedge and end expiration to calculate that PVR. And even with measuring end diastolic wedge here, PVR is two and a half minutes. And so her pulmonary hypertension is predominantly post-capillary, and if you replace her heart, it's going to go away. Assuming her lung parenchyma are okay and there's not something else I'm not aware of, I think a, a heart transplantation alone, uh, if she gets worse, would be sufficient. So what happened for this patient, she was actually, in the immediate term, referred for a TE. What I'm showing is from around 3 to 5 o'clock, there is a paravalvular regurgitation. 
explaining some of that V waves, explaining the hemolytic anemia. And when it was quantitated, it was certainly in the severe range. And on a uh, 2D view from the TE, we can just see that she has significant TR. So it was eventually done for this patient. She was feeling better on the 10 TID. She was increased on her sildenafil with close monitoring in the outpatient setting. She was referred for a heart transplant evaluation. She eventually did receive a mitral valve plug via transapical approach and still undergoing that heart transplant evaluation but feeling much better symptomatically. Now, those are the two cases we had there. Some of the alphabet suit that we get from reporting on a right heart catheterization includes things like transpulmonary gradient, diastolic pulmonary gradient. What's the utility of these numbers? And generally, how do you use it to inform your evaluation of patients with combined pre and post capillary pH? I'll speak a little bit specifically about the diastolic pulmonary gradient. So in 2013 at the World Symposium, when they suggested the diastolic pulmonary gradient be used uh, in isolation to diagnose uh, CPCPH. I was very excited. That was based on some of our work showing the increases in wedge pressure, increases the pulmonary pulse pressure, and also tile loading to the uh, RV and actually increases PBR. And so I actually thought it was going to be great. Uh, but then we actually looked at UNOS to see a DPG predicted outcome after transplant, and it did not. In thousands and thousands of patients, and even those who had elevated pulmonary vascular resistance, and the more and more that we started to understand about the, the diastolic pulmonary gradient, uh, the more we learned that it's not very useful. And why is that? One is the absolute cutoff is very low and being off by a millimeter of mercury is very easy to do because it's such a low number. But, but also if you look, we're using fluid filled catheters, we're using swan advanced catheters. And so there's a lot of catheter that occurs. And uh, next time you, you do a right heart cath, take a look and and, and tell me if you can decide with certainty what the diastolic pulmonary artery pressure is. And almost certainly you, you can't. And again, if you're off by one millimeter of mercury, six versus seven, you don't have it. And so using mean pressures, because those deflections, positive and negative, don't impact mean pressure, is much more reliable. And so I really never use the diastolic pulmonary gradient. I almost never use the transpulmonary gradient. I really rely on pulmonary vascular resistance. Uh, particularly when we're making a decision about transplantation or CPCPH. Thanks for those pearls, Dr. Tepfer. Yeah, you talked to a little bit about heart failure, mildly reduced EF, and how would you approach this uh, diagnosis and management? Yeah, I guess there's several forms of that, right? So there's the patients who present with mild reduced EF, and there's those that have been lower than have recovered, and I think those are probably a little bit different patients. I, I do think within the last year or two now, we have pretty good data about using medications like Zacubitrol Valsartan in patients who do not have a normal ejection fraction. So that would include the mid-range EF patients. That is also true of SGLT2 inhibitors. You all now know that they're approved for heart failure with any ejection fraction. And so first and foremost, I always try to make sure those patients are euvolemic. But I do think well, we have a couple of therapies now that those individuals should be on and probably spironolactone as well. Then, of course, we're going to do a diagnostic workup, just like any other patient with heart failure. We're going to check uh, thyroid function, everybody, HIV, and those who have risk factors. We're going to screen for coronary disease based on our history and physical. And the rest of that evaluation is guided by our history. This has been a phenomenal session, just hearing some of your pearls. For our audience, we'll make sure to include what Dr. Tepfer mentioned in our show notes. Thank you all again for joining us here today. Much, much thanks to Dr. Tepfer for taking the time to go through these cases. And we will see you all next time for rounds. Aaron, thanks for having me. And uh, if that patient hasn't had a heart transplant yet, send them down our way and we'll do it.